Okay, good evening, everyone. This is our second to last session of the season. Next week, penultimate. Next week will be the last one. Next week, we'll discuss Holocaust denial. But tonight, we're going to discuss the evolving perceptions of American anti-Semitism. Now, last year, when we discussed for a whole year the history of American uh, Judaism, American Jewish history, we spent a fair amount of time discussing various fa- uh, famous anti-Semitic incidents. But today, I want to... Uh, well, touch upon some of them, more importantly, examine how did people think about the problem of anti-Semitism over the generations? Did they perceive it to be a serious problem or did they regard it as something of a laughable matter and not very important on the communal agenda? And so we begin with the olden days. By the olden days, I mean the earliest um, serious efforts at the documenting of American Jewish history, which means the late 19th century. Um, for a long time, beginning in the, in the 1880s and 1890s, and going forward till basically World, till World War II and even beyond, American Jewish history was taught as though it was devoid of anti-Semitism. There was a rosy picture depicted that America was different. It was Ghanaian as opposed to the rest of the world, which is inundated with vile Jew hatred, America is not just different, it's very different. It's a a haven, a home, a paradise, where only good things happen and bad things don't happen. Or if bad things happen, they happen occasionally as a passing cloud, but not that the horizon gets dark and ominous. So, for example, in the early telling of American Jewish history, yes, Peter Stuyvesant tries to prevent the Jews from settling in New Amsterdam in 1654. And yes, Mordechai Manuel Noah is recalled by President Monroe from his position as American consul in Tunis. And yes, General Grant issues General Order Number 11. But, and here's the key, the but, all those stories have something of a happy ending. In other words, the good guys win. How so? That Stuyvesant's efforts to prevent Jews from living in New Amsterdam failed. The Jews petition the Dutch West India Company, who respond favorably to their petition and allow the Jews to stay. So chalk up a victory for the good guys and a loss for the bad guys. Or in the case of Manuel Noah, his career wasn't over. He continued to have uh, he was still a public personality, including his Ararat scheme in 1825. Or in the case of General Order Number 11, what happened? Lincoln immediately reversed it. So the good guys win and the bad guy loses. And not only does the bad guy lose, but the bad guy apologizes and becomes a friend of the Jews when he runs for president, which we spent a whole session on last time, Grant, in the 1868 election. Okay, so this is the way that the story is told. All good things, occasional blip on the radar, but even that gets reversed. In 1942, uh, one of the early writers on this topic was Jacob Weinstein and explained, if you want to accept this explanation, that there was the sterilization of the virus of religious bigotry as soon as it touches American soil. Now, that's a way over the top notion that we're all just getting along, kumbaya, including the Jews, as well as all the various denominations of Christianity. Oscar Handlin, 
who was a very prominent public intellectual at Harvard, uh, wrote Adventures in Freedom. That was the title of his book on American Jewish history. And he posited that American Jews, Americans were found Jews to be wonderful people. And there was total acceptance of them within society. Now, that's wishful thinking. But why is he saying it? Well, we want to be hopeful. And you can reinterpret the past with a benign hermeneutic, a favorable hermeneutic, if you really want to. When was this written? In the 1940s. Had a, uh, had a quota. Oh, we're going to get to that. Yes, yes, of course. But in addition to that, you had on Long Island, you had uh, clubs and country clubs. Sure, no Jews Island. allowed, no dogs, Jews, and blacks. I mean, uh, okay. So some claim, some will claim, in in the olden days when the story was being told through a you know uh, cheerful glasses, some would have claimed that anti-Semitism in America began with the Seligman-Hilton affair in 1877, when Joseph Seligman was not allowed onto Hilton's property in Saratoga, New York. One of the famous, uh, you know, uh, kerfuffles of the 19th century. But that's socially different than pogroms. Of course, of course. We're gonna, and we're going to draw a sharp distinction between pogroms and elite uh, snobbishness. And even the Jews had separate countries. Correct, yes. Yeah. Uh, the Austrian. Now, what about the Astors and the Our Crowd? We're going to see that the Our Crowd uh, is accepted to an extent, but only to an extent, which therefore requires them to have their separate crowd, as opposed to being thoroughly assimilated into the high society of the United States. But didn't they also reject those who are the newcomers? Sure, the nouveau, the nouveau, the nouveau riche, anyone who's newer than you are, is of course frowned upon as somehow being uncouth. So, so they were just almost as bad as the others. Yes, of course, of course. Now, before, before 1877, according to this theory, the Jews were too small of a minority to be noticed. And therefore, they kind of floated through this seamlessly through the first 200 years of their existence because there just weren't that many of them. Now, in 1888, Isaac Markins wrote Hebrews in America. And in 1892, the American Jewish Historical Society was founded. The Jews uh, uh, at that time who engaged in historical writing, historiography, were engaged in a practice of filiopietism, which means we look to the past and we say how wonderful our ancestors were uh, in this country, how they contributed greatly to the development of American society, and that they were just as important as any other group. Um, and any counter evidence is conveniently ignored because it runs afoul of the story that we're trying to tell. The desire was to show that hatred of Jews is unpatriotic and that it's against the American tradition. In other words, if you depict the 1770s and 1780s as a time uh, devoid of anti-Semitism, then you in the 1890s, who know that there is abyssal anti-Semitism, uh, you know, percolating, can say to the Goy who hates the Jews, hey, look, a hundred years ago, in Jefferson and, and, and Washington, they didn't hate Jews. You are being un-American in your animus towards me with the long nose. Okay? Now, Jefferson and Washington were depicted as Philo-Semites. The Puritans were depicted as Hebraists. Now, there's a, some truth to that, of course, because the early universities in the United States did teach Hebrew, and there would often be some uh, Meshumid uh, who, who was the Hebrew professor, because who else would have known Hebrew other than an ex-Jew? Well, sometimes some Protestant minister also knew Hebrew. Uh, and 
that anti-Semitism was regarded as a bad habit imported from Europe. That for the, for the indigenous crowd here, we know that that's not good. But the people who come over the boat, they bring with them their baggage from Europe. And one of the, the, the parcels in the baggage is Jew hatred. And it would be better to return to the virtuous ways of our American forebears. Fine. Uh, growing up in Great Nick, we had a, 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 a person who lived across the street from us who was, uh, who was a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Now, that crowd, the DAR, typically didn't like Jews. So here you have you know, the American Jewish Historical Society crowd saying, oh, no, no, the earliest phases, they loved the Jews. But Lemaisa, the, the daughters of the American Revolution crowd, didn't like Jews. It just so happened her son married a Jew and she had to go to her granddaughter's bat mitzvah. So that was, that was the price that she paid for her anti-Semitism. Okay. Now, uh, when does American anti-Semitism supposedly begin? Handlin would argue, in his pie-in-the-sky version, that it begins in the early 20th century, and that anything earlier than that are just slurs that lack malicious intent. Now, your point was no pogroms, and that's the idea. There's no real malicious intent. There's just a nasty comment, but it doesn't go anywhere. Some would argue that the Gilded Age in the late 19th century is when things get started, and that anti-Semitism begins with marginal groups in decline. What kinds of marginal groups in American society, let's say in the 1890s, would have a, a thing for Jew hatred? Give me an Irish. So the Irish in the, in the urban environment just are rough and tumble people who are bashing heads with anybody who, who they encounter. But which groups who have been around a little, little longer would have had a penchant for Jew hatred? Rural farmers, disaffected workers in the cities, and nativist patricians nativist patricians who don't like our crowd. The very idea of the Jew becoming wealthy and joining the patrician class was anathema to them. Okay, but all this was from the 1890s through maybe the 1950s, the the phony baloney telling of American Jewish history without an anti-Semitic character to it. But in the 1960s and 1970s, when American Jewish history began to be written by serious people, real scholars who want to know the truth and not just have a communal agenda with their, with their, with their writing, they uh, end up walking away from notions of American exceptionalism. And this comes as no surprise. American exceptionalism uh, in the academy was being trounced upon in the wild decade of the 60s and into the 70s, and that the darker side of American history, with its treatment of women, Blacks, Native Americans, Asians, you name it, is now coming to the fore, that there are averis in the, in, in the history of, uh, of American governance. Didn't this help us to, against intermarriage? Correct. So intermarriage benefits from uh, the standoffishness of the Gentile population. So if your concern is Lador Vador, Jewish continuity, then a certain element of social ostracism is to be preferred. Of course, it's never really pleasant, but it serves a useful purpose. But if that's not on your agenda because you're an assimilationist and much of American Jewry couldn't care less, then getting rid of those last vestiges of American anti-Semitism was a welcome development. Okay. So uh, in 1970, Jacob Rader Marcus, who was the, you know, the granddaddy of American Jewish historians, he lived to be 101. He was a professor at Hebrew Union College. 
He was born in uh, 1894 and died in 1995 and wrote 100 books or more. And it was the Gadol of American Jewish history. So in 1970, he wrote Colonial American Jew, three volumes. I have them. And one of the chapters is on the rejection of Jews, something which would never have been written 50 years earlier. It's the telling of the, the unpleasant part of the story, the rejection of the American Jew. And he explains that Jew was a dirty word. And Jews were denigrated in the press in the colonial period and in uh, the Bell Letters and literature. And occasionally there was some violence. Nothing serious like, uh, you know, 10 Jews being butchered to death in a pogrom, but an occasional fisticuffs violence. There was social prejudice. And he concludes that Jews found more acceptance in the colonies than anywhere else in the world, but not total acceptance. So it was better than anywhere else, anywhere else, including Amsterdam, including the, 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 the Calvinist parts of Western Europe. Still, it wasn't perfect. And we can't pretend as though it was perfect. There was little change in the Republican period, in the early Republican period. Cultural stereotypes played an important role. The Jew, as the name Jew, was still uh, not necessarily the most uh, desired epithet. And there was some economic discrimination. But let's take a look at what happened in the 1820s. So in the 1820s, the uh, New York German correspondent wrote the following. Jews are not generally regarded with a favorable eye. And quote-unquote Jew is an epithet which is frequently uttered in a tone bordering on contempt. Say what you will, prejudices against the Jews exist here and subject them to inconveniences from which other citizens of the United States are exempt. So this is not a matter of law, it's a matter of practice, that in the 1820s there were some liabilities, social liabilities, on account of being a Jew. Then we go to 1837 in the New York Herald and some nasty stuff written by James Gordon Bennett, who was capable of writing a philo-Semitic article when he felt like it, but every now and then wrote an anti-Semitic article. And so... Carroll yeah, uh, Square has his statue. Yeah? Yeah. That's the statue with the... Oh, with okay, the, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So he says like this. Here are pictured forth from their own sacred writings, the Talmud, which is considered a second part of the Bible, the real opinion of the Jews on the original and sacred founder of Christianity. In the midst of Christians, surrounded by Christian usages, the Jews may conceal these terrible opinions and doctrines, may attempt to beguile and deceive those among who, li who live among them, in order to better crush all religion under the secret poison of infidelity and atheism. But their Talmud and their Targums are evidence against them. So this is like uh, the, their Talmud Yud of August Rowling, or Entectus Udentum by Eisenmenger, which we discussed a couple of months ago, where they take the Talmud and cherry-pick sources and make it look like the Jews are vicious misanthropes who hate Christianity and hate everybody else. And you can do that. You can get away with taking a line here and a line there, and it makes the Jews look bad. So we shouldn't think that that, that never happened in the United States. It did happen to a limited extent. I don't know who was reading this and who was buying into it or who cared, but it was written. So did the Jew try and bend backwards to show... That he was really yes. a good guy? So, so there was in the 1820s a publication called The Jew by, uh, by Samuel Jackson. Not Samuel L. Jackson, but Samuel Jackson. There was a Jew. And the goal was to defend against the calumnies uh, put forth by those who didn't like us and say that, the, you know, whatever quotations are, are incorrect and the Jew is a, a good patriotic citizen and doesn't hate his, his colleague. Uh, th so there are attempts within literature 
to counter the unpleasant parts of the anti-Semitic literature. You mentioned the 60s and the 70s. When it came to the civil rights, the yeah. Jews were in the forefront. Of course, of course. And what happened? They got bitten in the you-know-what. Yeah, yeah. I know. So it never know. works. So in literature, there are unpleasant motifs and Jewish tropes in in early 19th century and into the mid-19th century. Shylock, the Jewish criminal, the pawnbroker, the beautiful Jewish daughter who beguiles the, the Gentile. Uh, so this exists. And to the extent that people are reading in those days, I mean, nowadays nobody reads, we're all zombies in front of the computer. But in those days, people did read. And so fictional literature does play a role in developing enforcing opinions. But there's ambivalence because things could go either way. Sometimes people wanted to see a Jew. Curiosity. What happens if you're a Gentile who lives in, the, uh, in Appalachia or the Midwest? Not in a big city, but, you know, 50 miles outside of a big city where there's not, there's not a single Jew in your town. And you heard in Cincinnati there are Jews. There were people who traveled 50, 100 miles just to see the horns. And when they got there and there were no horns, they were a little disappointed. So curiosity, they, they want to know the, the, the children of, you know, the children of Abraham, the, 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 the chosen people. But curiosity, as much as, it's, as it can be nice, the lure of the exotic gave way to fear of the unknown. And fear of the unknown means that the Jew and others who are exotic end up being held in suspicion and then held in contempt. So the mythological Jew of the Christian tradition goes head to head against the Jew next door, the actual, the real live Jew who lives next door. And there's a common theme in the latter half of the 19th century and into the first decades of the 20th century of, well, the Jews. I don't mean you. I mean the Jews. So you have a Jewish neighbor. I don't mean you. I mean the Jews more generally. And people would say so, sorts of things. Some of my best friends are Jewish. Um, what my professor, Jeffrey Gurak, uh, tried to explain this distinction. And he said, let's say during the 1890s in times of recession, you know, when uh, 1896 election, the populist movement, William James Bryan, Cross of Gold speech, it was tough times on the farm. And then the 1930s, also in the Dust Bowl, also tough times in the farm. So the farmer who's struggling might hate Rothschild Bank, the Jewish banking system, and want to burn down the house of Rothschild because he hates them, hates the Jews. But the guy who owns the general store in his town happens to be a Jew who also happened to extend him seed on credit when he had no ability to pay. So the local Jewish store owner, the general store, is Mamish at Tzadik and save this guy's bacon. But the Jew in the abstract, the big banker on Wall Street, that's the devil incarnate. So you have like the, the, the mythical Jew who actually does exist at the, at the highest level and the local Jew who's a good guy. So you could hate one and even love the other. So and a certain ambivalence. Okay. Well, uh, Henry Ford also fell into this trap. He, he had a Jewish friend, this rabbi, Leo Franklin, Franklin, was a local rabbi. He was a friend of his. Uh, and Ford actually believed that his Jewish friends would help him in his crusade against the international Jew, the bad Jewish cabal. Uh, but that's sometimes 
anti-Semites have these weird notions of gaining cooperation from the, 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 the targets of their animus. It doesn't make much sense, but it happens. Okay. Now, in the late 19th century, even the slightest manifestation of a so-called typical Jewish trait could reignite old charges and get people, Gentiles, riled up uh, against the Jewish community. Uh, even earlier than the Gilded Age was the Civil War. And Bertram Cohn, who wrote the authoritative book, American Jewry and the Civil War, stated that anti-Jewish prejudice was a characteristic expression of that era. It was part of the cultural and economic upheaval. So in this respect, General Order Number 11 was not an exception. It was part of a pattern, part of a pattern. In both the North and the South, Jews were regularly branded as the scapegoat. Um, but there was also good, and we learned about that good. So what were some of the favorable developments in the Civil War, even while there are bad things, even while there's scapegoating of Jews and Grant's order, what are some of the good things that happened? So number one, the Grant's order was rescinded, and Lincoln showed a, a concern for Jewish civil rights. But also there was the chaplain episode, where Jewish chaplains were allowed for the first time to become uh, to receive government commission. There was uh, Jew P. Benjamin rising to the heights of the Confederacy, and Jews being highly decorated for her heroism on the battlefield. So, yeah, it's a time of increased anti-Semitism, but it's also a time of increased Jewish participation in American society. And as a result of that participation, Jews went into the post-war economic boom where they were very successful with greater self-assurance than ever before, than ever before. But what that self-assurance did was allow Jews to build grand edifices in the 1860s and 1870s, and you've been in some of them. What am I talking about? The big reform synagogues all over the United States. I mean, the ones in New York don't exist anymore because Emanuel is from the 1920s, but the San Francisco, St. Louis, Chicago, big buildings that are still, still around today, uh, the gaudy synagogue temples of the post-Civil War era. But while Jews were willing to do that because they felt self-assured, on the other hand, they were keenly aware that there's some residual anti-Semitism and the term Jew is not so kosher. So what do they use instead of Jew? Israelite or Hebrew. So there's the American Hebrew and the American Israelite, two classic 19th century American Jewish publications, which use the terms that avoided the term Jew. Israelite, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anti-Semitism crested in the 50 years preceding World War II, let's say between um, the 1890s and 1941. It's a time of nativism, a time of isolationism. Leo Frank, Henry Ford, college quotas, the German-American Bund, okay? And Jews have to overcome these obstacles to rise to prominence, and they do. What Jonathan Sarna, uh, the most important American Jewish historian, uh, likes to, to say is that in the 1970s, as anti-Semitism was being recognized as an important component in Jewish history writing, there was an obsession, an over-obsession as far as he's concerned, with the Shoah, not that he's opposed to Holocaust studies, but rather the Shoah as it could potentially happen here. So could it happen here? That's what everyone wants to know. And the answer 
invariably is yes. If, the, if your answer was no, you wouldn't bother writing a book. All right. If you're going to write a book, it's because the answer is yes. And the classic book on that was Michael Seltzer's Kike, a documentary history of American of, uh, anti-Semitism in America, published in 1972, which overstated everything and understated any contrary evidence. Um, there was a tendency to overblow the incident at Messina of 1928, the blood libel in upstate New York. In fact, there were several other episodes that were f- far less famous, but where the same thing happened. An out-of-the-way place where it's like an ignorant police department, ignorant local government authorities. They really think the Jews kill people uh, for blood, uh, for, real, for ritualistic purposes. And they inquire and they have egg on their face when they realize it's not true. So, yes, it happened in Messina in 1928 around Yom Kippur time. And the rabbi was called in for questioning. But it wasn't the only episode. And none of those ever really mattered. Okay. Um, Albert Lee, who wrote Henry Ford and the Jews. Actually, did someone just mention that in the chat? Um, So Albert Lee argued that Henry Ford paved the way for Auschwitz, that Hitler derived some lessons from Henry Ford, not the other way around. Sarna argues very forcefully that the USA is not Nazi Germany, and the historiographical pendulum had swung too far against American exceptionalism, that the USA is different, and it's very different. And that we need to understand American anti-Semitism, but never to conflate it with what happens overseas because they're of a different apples and oranges. Now, why is that the case? So Sana offers four explanations for why American anti-Semitism was never able to develop the kind of virulence and, and, and um, lethality that it did across the pond in Europe. So I'll give you the four Sana explanations for this uh, truth. First one is, the Jews always fought freely, meaning emancipation was not given to American Jews as a reward for some good behavior. You know, in, in Europe, we learned about this a lot. Why was emancipation given? Because there was an evolution internally in the Jewish community, away from hyper-Orthodoxy, away from Yiddish, towards secularization, secular education, diversification of the economic profile, the deal was you cease to be Jewish in the medieval sense of the word, and you'll get emancipation. It was true in the Germanic lands and the Habsburg Empire and a whole lot of parts of Europe. In America, did that happen? No. How did American Jews get emancipated? It started out that way. From the, basically from the very beginning, yeah, I mean, in the colonial period, it, had to, it took some time. But from the beginning, basically, the Jews are free. So since the Jews did not, were not granted emancipation as a reward, it's not tolerance or sufferance, it's rather a matter of right, they're not afraid to lose it. When you're not afraid to lose something, you can be pugnacious in defending yourself. So Chaim Solomon uh, publicly and forcefully defended the Jews against anti-Semitic charges brought by, by a Quaker lawyer, reminding him that his own religious sect was just admitted to the, to the club a few years ago. You know, in other words, you want to say that we Jews are on the margins? No, you're on the margins. Yes, you have freedom because this is America, but you got it recently. And we'll punch back. We'll punch back hard. So you're saying it's much more difficult to take away something that was an inherent right. Correct. In Europe, 
we gave you emancipation. We could take it away. And they took it away. Took it away, right. So who else was a fighter uh, in this regard? Isaac Mayerwise. Isaac Mayerwise, I've said from this, from this lectern many times, I'm not a fan of his. On religious re- grounds, I think he did a lot of damage in the United States to Judaism. But he was a tough defender of Jewish rights against any and all anti-Semites. And he would even imagine anti-Semites that didn't actually exist. He was so uh, neurotic about these sorts of things, but he would punch. Who else? Louis Marshall in the 19-teens and 20s as the leader of the American Jewish Committee. And Stephen Wise, who, again, I've said from this lectern many times that I'm not a big fan of his, but he would fight back against anti-Semitism. So Eli is asking about quotas. Yes, so quotas are, are, are a factor in the first few decades of the 20th century, an example of educational anti-Semitism. Now, Brandeis does pertain to that. One of the reasons for its establishment was in order to have a high-level institution, uh, a university setting, where you didn't have to worry about that. I'm about the person. Oh, the person. Yeah. Oh, so, the, so Brandeis's selection to the Supreme Court does, does damage to the cause of the anti-Semites because it means that you can't keep a good man down. If a Jew is deserving of a high-level government position, he's going to get it. Okay. The second, the second fact here. Yeah. I mean, the Germans were German. Correct. In, in like, they still Ukraine, the Ukrainians, the Russians. Good. They're, they're like tribes. Good. They're, so, they so, that. so that, that's the third explanation. I'm going to get to that in a second. So, Sina's second explanation is that in the United States, anti-Semitism was never able to compete successfully with other forms of bigotry, whether it's anti-Black hatred anti-Native American, anti-Asian, anti-Quaker, anti-Mormon, anti-Teutonism, anti-Communism, anti-Freemasonry, Anglophobia. There are all sorts of hatreds that are out there, none of which ever was uh, able to muscle its way, muscle out the rest. I mean, anti-Black hatred obviously is the most pronounced, but there were plenty of others. And so anti-Semitism... Uh, certainly was was never number one on the the uh, the list of people that we hate. So what you're saying is they'll go after the blacks before they go after the Jews. Yes, yes, and which is which is one of the important factors in why Jews are so involved in the NAACP at its founding uh, and in civil rights movement in the 1960s. Some of it is the shame shemayim for the sake of heaven, you know, to do the right thing, but also because of an assumption that if you if you raise up the lowest uh, rung of the ladder. Everyone else goes up higher as well. That if, if in America the white man can't persecute the black man, then he also can't persecute the Jew. I always thought that in West against the Jews because of the blacks. You know, yes, it's true. Blacks and didn't they didn't bother us as much. Okay. Now, number three anti Catholic, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, the third one, as you said, tribalism. The concept of the folk, the folk in Germany is a big deal and other parts of Europe as well, that there's a notion of uh, genetically passing down uh, certain character traits and that we've been this fatherland for a thousand years or two thousand years and we are, uh, this is us and across the yonder is them and we are not them and they are not us and there's no uh, means by which to amalgamate, but rather you'll always remain a distinct folk as opposed to the United States, which never really had that. It's foreign to U.S. culture. 
it's un, it, could be, it could be branded as un-American, where even before the melting pot, even before the melting pot, even when it was you know, WASP dominance, still even within WASP dominance, there's a wide diversity. And we're not one folk. We just happen to live in this new land. Okay. Um, also, the Constitution is a very potent weapon in the defense of the Jews, in the sense that in Germany, in the 1930s, they could point to the 1730s or even the 1830s and say, listen, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, rights were held by ethnic Germans and non-ethnic Germans had nothing or had very little. And we should resort back to what was. Well, in the United States, can you say that? You really can't. Because the U.S. Constitution has been around since the 1780s, 1790s, and it's been giving freedoms ever since. So it doesn't matter what Washington or Jefferson or Adams privately held about Jews. In fact, what did they do about Jews? They created a system that gave them full rights. Okay. And the fourth uh, theory that Sarna has as to why anti-Semitism was unable to uh, develop uh, in, in, in the fashion that it did in Europe was because of the U.S. political system. It's a two-party system, and no party, no political party, is able to um, alienate a, a segment, the demographic, lest it r- run the risk of losing. Meaning, both parties have to try to appeal to every ethnic group. Now, they'll typically fail, okay, but they have to at least try. Um, and third parties go nowhere. Third parties, fringe parties, which might be inclined to be overtly anti-Semitic, overtly anti-Semitic, may well come into being, but they don't win. And so if they don't win, they're not affecting policy. I think the fear is that someday they may right. get enough clout. Right. think of the squad. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You see more and more people, more and more. I mean, it's a very small minority, but you do see more and more of that. Ilk. That's true. That's true. So Sarna concludes by saying that Fears of an American Holocaust are, gro- are grossly exaggerated. Now, in the, in the time we have left, I want to just go through chronologically some of the bad things that happened, the, the, the highlights of American anti-Semitism, starting from the Civil War and going forward. So, number one, Grant's Order Number Eleven, uh, and which we've which that's it, so which we which we've discussed before, and that is a, a turning point for some. In the, in the telling of the story. But it really shouldn't be. Let's jump ahead to the populism of the 1880s and 18, especially 1890s. As I said, it was mostly rhetorical, meaning there's no pogrom and there's no program. No pogrom and no program. What's, what kind of program? The Nazis had a program. Mein Kampf is a manifesto that says this is what we ought to do to the detriment of the Jews going forward, specifically to rescind this or that right, and when we take power, we will do it. As opposed to anti-Jewish rhetoric of 1890s America, where it's just the Jews are a convenient target of sloganeering. But what are you going to do if you actually take power? Nothing. No rights are going to be stripped away. Then let's go to college quotas. So college quotas play an important role in the history of the internal history of Jews. 
insofar as people who could have gotten an elite education didn't. But it also had a, a favorable impact upon which institutions? The Jewish institutions. So number one, some Jewish institutions that uh, were able to retain students who otherwise might have gone to elite places. Think of Yeshiva College or even Brandeis. Or sit, now, the CUNYs, City College. The CUNY system benefited greatly from the quotas of the Ivy Leagues because now brilliant kids with 1,600 SAT scores in large numbers are roaming the streets of, uh, uh, of one, uh, 137th Street up, uptown or at a later period going to, even to Brooklyn College or, or even to NYU. Um, so uh, so it's, it's not a, a, an entirely negative story. There's a certain positive spin to the whole thing. Einstein Medical School, yeah. Established because the Jews couldn't get into the other schools. And for the next 65 years, while well, you had a medical school, until right. it didn't. <laughs> yeah. Now, World War I, actually before World War I, uh, Leo, the, the Leo Frank case, the Leo Frank case, which we spent the whole session on last year, was a disaster. The fact that he was, he was lynched uh, outside uh, the courthouse was a disgrace. It was an example of American justice run amok. The system was unable to protect itself. Forget protect Frank, and the system couldn't protect itself. But what was the result of, of, of Leo Frank? The establishment of the ADL. So for every you know, bad episode, there is some reaction that has long-term salutary uh, uh, consequences. Then World War I. Jews are regarded as slackers and profiteers. Now, that's not just true only in America. It's true everywhere. Whenever there's a major conflict, Jews are going to be identified as slackers and profiteers. So what's the Jewish reaction to that? To put out literature proving that Jews have participated in every American war. And one of the important books and in, in, uh, documentary books in the writing of American Jewish history is that work that was produced in 1916 detailing all the Jews who who, died for the cause. And I have a copy of it in my office. It's actually a collector's item. Um, Now we go to 1917 to 1924. Immigration laws. Why are the immigration laws changed to uh, restrict Eastern and Southern Europeans? Well, because the Jews and the Italians were seen as undesirable, and let's keep America Northern European and Western European. So this is part of the anti-Semitic story. What are the uh, long-term adverse consequences of this? That people who wanted to leave Europe in the interwar period, who foresaw disaster looming, had a very difficult time getting to the United States, which meant that many people died who otherwise could have been saved. It also meant that Jewish communities developed where? South America, Cuba, you know, all these other places where people who wanted to go to the United States have to go somewhere else. Okay, what about in the 1920s itself, the KKK? So Jew hatred in in, in the interwar period is overt in certain parts of the country. Yes, there's country club anti-Semitism at the elite level. But there's also the gutter level. Uh, and especially in the South, 
there's the prospect of synagogues being bombed or you know burning crosses on lawns just as it's done to to blacks and even to catholics it's done to jews but does this necessarily mean that jews in the south run away from that kind of politics no there are still southern jews in the first half of the 20th century and into the second half of the 20th century who internalized the, the, the sort of the bigoted attitudes of that region, just not vis-a-vis Jews, just towards the other targets. So that's a, a sad uh, you know, sub-story of American Jewish history. I think I quoted some reform rabbis with some anti-Black comments in last year's course. Okay, let's go ahead to the 1930s. So Father Coughlin, uh, William Dudley Pelly, the Silver Shirt Legion of America, Gerald K. Smith, the German-American Bund, uh, you have it in New York, in Kleiner Deutschland, in Yorkville. There, there are places where it's unpleasant to be, you know, to, to, to walk on the streets if you're, if you're obviously Jewish. Down south, my father's great uncle was asked to become a member of the KKK. Yeah. He was a banker in town. Uh-huh. So, you know, he was a banker. I guess that's why they wanted him in. Right. Well, when, when, when there's a wide range of groups you don't like, then as long as, even if you are in one of those groups, as long as you don't like the other groups, you're okay. You're okay. <laughs> okay. So, I guess, yeah. So it didn't really matter much that it was specifically against Jews. It was no, anybody. Anybody they didn't like. It wasn't like them. Now, the America, the America First Committee of Charles Lindbergh plays a significant role in trying to keep the United States out of World War II. Uh, Truth be told, the United States was kept out of World War II officially until Pearl Harbor, although between May of 1940 and December of 1941, America really is part of the war, just not fighting with their own troops. I mean, you have volunteers going to Europe who are fighting in foreign armies in significant numbers and lend-lease. American uh, industry and money is being invested in the defeat of fascism. Well, who doesn't want to defeat fascism? The America First crowd. They like fascism. They're not going to say so explicitly, but it's perfectly obvious that they're not necessarily the biggest fans of American-style democracy. They like a certain uh, totalitarian style, and they'd be pleased with a Hitlerian version of America. From what I'm getting from what you're saying, Lindbergh was an isolationist, but Lindbergh went to Germany. Lindbergh was honored by Hitler. Yes, yes. He, he, he liked it. He, he, he was a fan of, of Nazi Germany. What about Joe Kennedy? Joe Kennedy, same thing. Joe Kennedy was sent off to England to be the ambassador to the court of St. James, largely because Roosevelt didn't want him around in the United States. You know, it was a potential rival. Just get him out of here give him an ambassadorship across the pond. But he was a fan of the goings-on in Central Europe. Downright anti-Semite, yeah, a Jew hater. Okay, so we move ahead to Roosevelt's refugee policy, which we spent two sessions on, actually three sessions on last year. Uh, And if the one point that I will make, which is a repetition of one of the points I made last year, is that as much as you want to blame Roosevelt, and people do, the Congress controlled immigration policy to the, the, the significant extent. 
and the executive branch had limited ability to tinker with that policy. Why did the legislative branch uh, not change the law to allow for a humanitarian rescue of more Jews? The answer is because the American public on the whole did not want such a policy and the 435 members of Congress and 100 senators were reflecting the will of the American people. And that's something that can't be overlooked. Okay, it's not just that you can, you can blame bigoted politicians. Bigoted politicians do bigoted things if they think that's what's going to get them reelected. And if the public doesn't want a liberal immigration policy, there won't be one. Okay. Um, we jump ahead a little bit. Post-war, there's a decline in anti-Semitism between 1947 through the 1960s. It's very clear. Although there is still some, you know, suburban Jews keep out sort of thing and codicils and this or that gated community, we don't want Jews. There's a noticeable decline in anti-Semitism in the post-World War II era, a product of, in part, Jewish participation in the war effort um, and Jews, American Jews recognizing we are a part of this country. And we're not going to take no for an answer. But let's now go to the late 60s. By the way, the Rosenbergs. Uh, a cause for anti-Semitism? The Rosen... Oh, so that's interesting. The Rosenbergs were a potential to call... were potentially fodder for an anti-Semitic backlash. But interestingly, who did not turn their agenda, their movement into an anti-Semitic one? The detestable Joe McCarthy. As horrible as Joe McCarthy might have been, he never made it into an anti-Semitic movement. It was anti-communism, which some people might have interpreted as being anti-Jewish. And the first Red Scare of Judeo-Bolshevism in the the late 19-teens, early 1920s really was anti-Semitic. But the 1950s version of the Red Scare, McCarthyism, he personally avoided uh, besmirching the whole American Jewish community. Who was his lawyer? Roy Cohn. Okay, fine. Who was the judge? Uh, no, that was before Weinstein. Uh, but, but the judge in the Rosenberg case was Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just tell you as, as an aside, and I might have told this story once before, uh, the best stories you get are from hearse drivers who work for the funeral home. And I do some, some work for George T. Davis Funeral Home in New Rochelle. And one of the drivers, the old guy by the name of James Dixon, I'm not even sure he's still alive, but he told me the story maybe nine, ten years ago. And he said his father was a, a prison guard at, at Sing Sing and on death row. And it was his job to play racquetball with Julius and Ethel Rosenberg every day for a year because they had to be in good health to be executed. So he, played, he did athletics with them so he could kill them because that's what the law required. And I said, okay, coming from a hearse driver, this is a really good story. Um, now, let's jump ahead. So in the 1960s, late 60s, there is the falling out between the African-American community and the Jewish community, which, uh, you know, there's Ocean Hill-Brownsville, which we spoke about last year, uh, and other episodes in the, the very late 60s, early 70s, where there's Conflict. Marikahana doesn't exactly play a, a favorable role in this, stoking uh, uh, ethnic uh, tension, and then he goes off to Israel. 
Nixon? Was Nixon a Jew hater? Absolutely. But he saved Israel when Kissinger, his sidekick, the Jew, would have done uh, no such thing. So sometimes on a policy matter, the person who in his gut doesn't like Jews can come through in the clutch when the ethnic Jew can be our worst adversary. LBJ also didn't was was known for for bigoted comments, but come through, but but came through on behalf of uh, uh, for Israel when they needed it. But also the author of the Civil Rights Act, which coming from the South and coming from Texas, was a major step forward. Yes, yes. Okay, the Skokie Rally of 1978. Before my time, I was born in 1981, but I'm sure some of you remember this was a major controversy going up to the court, is is there a freedom of speech? Can it be suppressed? And ultimately, it was allowed to happen. In a neighborhood with a lot of Holocaust survivors, this was a deliberate patchen punem to the Holocaust survivors, but the Jewish community was able to get past it, and it basically hasn't happened uh, since. Wasn't the Supreme Court this week not handle a case involving, I think it's in Michigan, where they're being picketed by anti-Semites uh-huh. and the Supreme Court will not listen to the case. Uh, well, that's an unfortunate development, but uh, uh, is it the Westboro Baptist Church? What? Is it the Westboro Baptist Church who are doing the picketing? I don't know. Because they, they go to the, the worst possible place, you know, they'll go to a military funeral and start right. shouting all sorts of horrible slogans at a funeral. Right. Uh, you have crazy people like that. Now, 1984, Jaime Town. Who said Jaime Town? Oh, Jesse Jackson. Jackson. Okay, so uh, uh, one, one of my congregants uh, when I was at Park East, Dr. Michael Reich, uh, who was dual Israeli American citizen, um, said that his father called him from Israel after the Jaime Town comment and said, I hope you have your Israeli passport still valid. You know, it may be time to get out. All right. The Nation of Islam. Uh, plays ne- never plays an important role, but always wished it could play an important role. You know, Farrakhan uh, is given much more attention than objectively he deserves, but it was a, you know he could be a scary uh, figure on the scene from the 1980s and onward. The Crown Heights riots of 1991 were really bad in the moment, and sadly we lost Yankel Rosenbaum. But on the positive side of that, the fact that it got really really bad actually, in the long run, help things improve. And if you ask Lubavitchers and Blacks uh, in Crown Heights today, you know, is, are things better than they were 30 years ago? And the answer is definitely yes. Um, Zog. What is Zog? Zionist occupied government. In the, starting in the 1990s, there is this notion in the you know, far right-wing corners of the internet or before the internet, uh, you know, the pamphlets, that the American government is dominated by Jews who are doing the bidding of Israel. Well, who among, not the, uh, the kooks, but rather someone bordering on, the ma- bordering on the mainstream who ran for president said basically the same thing in 1992, Pat Buchanan, with his comment about the Amen Corner. Remember the Amen Corner? That who are the two, uh, what are the two institutions that are pushing for war? This was September 1990. Now remember, what happens in August of 1990? Operation Desert Shield. When is Operation Desert Storm? 
January of 91, the night that the Giants beat the 49ers with Matt Barr's 49-yard field goal. I was at the Concord Hotel watching it. Um, Oliver Shalom. So, but in September of 1990, Pat Buchanan gets on the McLaughlin group or whatever show or meet the press and says there are only two entities pushing for America to actually fight a war against Saddam Hussein. And who are they? The Israeli government of Yitzhak Shamir and the Amen Corner, meaning APAC and allied entities in the United States, pressuring the American Congress and the American president to do something for Israel, for Israel. Okay. Um, and then after the 1990s, of course, we have uh, you know, the new anti-Semitism of the American left, the far left, uh, and college campus situations of today. But I want to mention you know, murderous anti-Semitism in the United States. So give me examples of loss of life over the last, let's say, half, half a century. Well, we have the Tree of Life. Saturday. So Tree of Life, obviously, and the Poway is the most recent, 2018, 2019. Uh, but what other examples do you recall from an earlier time, slightly earlier? So Ari Halberstam, 1994 on the on the uh, Bridge, um, and uh, Mayer Kahana, 1990, El Sayed Nasser. Was that an American, or was just in America? It just happened in. You could argue it just happened in America. But there's also something, another assassination that you could claim has uh, tangential associations with, with, with Jewry. Sirhan Sirhan, Sirhan, assassination of RFK by a Palestinian who felt that the Democrat Party in America was too pro-Israel, whatever it might be. So people can get killed in this country due to Jewish, anti-Jewish politics. All right. So I'll stop here. Um, uh, actually, someone wants to make a comment. Uh, let me unmute everybody. One second. Allow participants to unmute themselves. Okay, if you want to make a comment, now's your chance. No? Wow. The Jews are silent? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Okay, so we'll stop here. Next week is our last session. We're going to discuss Holocaust denial. What time? 8.30, 8.30 next week, 8.30. Have a good yontif to one and all.